contracting with them to guide them to Jesus when the crowd was not around at night so they could arrest him then and not risk a riot. <coughs> and uh, we're moving on now to the last night of Jesus' life. Um, putting everything together, I think, most likely Thursday night. And um, there's a number of events that occur on this night, particularly when you put all the gospel accounts together. Um, but, uh, first of all, we have this um, eating of this Passover meal, and some of the things that were associated with that, and really several things are. So, let's start with 12 to 21, if somebody read that. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved, and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So, this Passover uh, feast was something that the Jews would celebrate each year to remind them of God delivering them from Egypt, God sparing the firstborn when the firstborn Egyptians were killed, and so forth. And Jesus is orchestrating the preparation for their eating he uh, sends two of them and gives them instructions. Does this remind you of anything? Yes. Very similar to when he made the preparations to get the colt for the triumphal entry. And I think the same point can be made here that was made there. This is a very traumatic period of time for Jesus. An unnerving time. And yet he's very much in control. You know, he's got all the details down. Go into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. You know, say to him such and such, and he'll show you this, and you do this. I mean, he's just kind of going through the, the scenario with them, you know, um, orchestrating uh, the preparation for the eating of the Passover. I think I would have been rattled at this point. And, you know, it would have been hard for me to think all that through. But Jesus was always in command of, of every situation. You never see him come unglued. And uh, so they're getting the Passover uh, meal ready there in the upper room that the man has. Do you have some thoughts and comments on those verses from 12 to 16? We're, 
Were these two disciples also apostles? I'm assuming that's what this means. Sometimes disciples is used for apostles, and that, that would be my assumption here. Because it looks to me like the apostles were the ones who ate the Last Supper with Jesus. Because it says in 17, when he came with the 12. Yes. And then, no, they were like, just, he's coming with the 10, and the other two were there. Well, yes. The 12 becomes one of those terms that doesn't necessarily mean 12. And it may be, I, I sort of envisioned this, although I don't know, is that they prepared the room, then they came back to Jesus, and then they went. I'm not necessarily assuming that Jesus and the Ten came and met them at the place, but who knows? It certainly is possible. Um, don't ask me where, but there are some passages where the Twelve refers to the Eleven without Judas. I think there may even be one where it referred to the Ten without Judas and Thomas, but I'm not sure about that. But at least the Twelve is used even when Judas wasn't a part of them. So that becomes kind of a technical term for the Apostles, however many of them there were. In terms of preparing, would that have maybe involved this remo the removal of, of leaven from the house? If there was leaven in the house, it would have. Yeah, and, and then I think, you know, providing for the cooking of the lamb and the other ingredients that they use, the, the fruit of the vine, and, and I don't know, there's a whole whole series of things that they did. So I, I suppose setting the table and, you know, I don't know. I was just saying, what did they do exactly to prepare for Passover, and what, would, what more? Would, when they were sacrificing the lamb, is that when it was being, the lamb for them was being sacrificed at the temple? Was there a lamb sacrificed at the temple in the Passover? I'm not sure. I'm not either. I don't. I was thinking so. that there would, they would, it, they took it and sacrificed it and they took it back, but maybe I'm... No, well, man, I know so little about these things, I don't think so. I think every family, or even the family was small, you know, yeah. a couple of families would get together and, you know... So you didn't actually present the I don't lamb? know, but it, yeah, I'm not even sure, I don't know. Should we call the Passover lamb exactly a sacrifice? It was being sacrificed. Does, is, do we have that here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Verse 12. Okay. Well, it says they killed it on the side of the sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a sacrifice. I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think it was a sacrifice in the same sense that it would have been with the animals brought to the tabernacle. Everybody want to offer an intelligent comment on all that? So he comes and is there at the table eating this Passover, which turns out to be his last meal, with the disciples, and he drops a bombshell on them. What does he tell them? Now, one of you is going to betray me. And they all say, 
You know, that's not what I would have expected them to say. <laughs> you know what I would have expected them to say? Not me. Is it Judas? <laughs> you know, have you ever been in like, when you were in school, in a class, and the teacher said, you know, one of you is, you know, is going to blow this. One of you is going to act up, is going to mess up. Half the time, everybody in the class would have said, you know, is it Johnny? You know, because you knew who was going to do that. It's striking to me that they don't say, is it Judas? What does that tell you? They didn't know about everything that Judas was doing on the side? I think Judas had uh, managed to keep himself incognito. I don't think they all jumped to imagining that. You know, and, and I mean, uh, I don't think they would have seen Judas the way we see Judas at all. Saying Judas had kept up a good appearance. He maintained a good image. Otherwise, I think they would have said that. Now, granted, here's something you might think about. When we read this, we're thinking, yeah, selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and becoming a guide to the high priest. They don't know what betraying means. You know, this is a more general term for them than it is for us. I'm guessing they might have even imagined some accidental betrayal. You know, giving him away without purposing that. Because I'm not sure they would have said, is it I, if they had known that he meant selling him for profit. I don't think they would have thought they would have done that. So, so but, but I do think, you know, their question is good in the sense that they are thinking about their own possibility of messing things up. You know, I think, you know, surely not I. It's not me, is it? I, I, um... You know, it's kind of, I think that shows you they were scared by it. It's kind of shocking to them. One of me, one of you? Not, not me. You know, but I think that shows some introspection on their part, which is a good thing. Maybe we ought to ask that. You know, should we ask, is it me? Does it betray Jesus? Well, that might be a good question for us to reflect on. Comments? Probably would because, you know, you're in different situations and you're studying about something or talking about something and, you know, why not ask someone else, do you see that in me? And let somebody else give you some feedback. Or even just self-analysis, mm-hmm. you know, looking at ourselves and saying, you know, have we ever, have we ever sold Jesus out? Do we sell Jesus out? Now, I'll tell you another thing that's remarkable to me about this. Um, they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. I am assuming Judas probably said the same thing. And we know that Judas, you know, did not do something that gave himself away at that point, because we know from John's Gospel in John 13 that, you know, after they were eating the supper, uh, you know, Jesus told him in John 13, 27, what you do, do quickly. 
Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he'd said this to him. Some were supposing, because Jesus had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So Judas is there at the meal, with ice water in his veins, he manages to bluff his way through this thing. After Jesus had said this! And, and nobody suspects it. It's amazing, man's ability to keep a poker face and to keep up his image when he is about to commit the most dastardly deed in history. And again, I think, is that a warning to us? You know, I, you know, you hear some things that just are so, so shocking. I mean, you know, I've known personally of, you know, situations where, you know, highly respected Christians at the very time they were, you know, preaching sermons or helping other Christians or doing some really great spiritual things were betraying everything they ever stood for with an affair or, or with other outrageous conduct and were, were, you know, covering it all up. So Judas is sort of a poster child for, for those who maintain a good image with no character. interesting question, isn't it? Well, what do you say? Should we suspect everyone? We should not put our trust in man. Yes. As long as we suspect ourselves as well. I think that's a good point. It seems to me like the first one we ought to suspect is ourselves. Um, I think the disciples did the right thing when they said, you know, is it me? So I think that might be helpful. You know, I've preached a sermon before. Uh, Christians will disappoint you. <laughs> and, you know, I t- I, what I do is I just go through the Bible and look at different examples of Christians who really disappoint you. You know, you think about Ananias and Sapphira. You think about... You know, Peter in Galatians 2. You think about a guy like Diotrephes and Demas. And, you know, and, and you know, you start looking for, the, well, there's all kinds of Christians that, that, you know, are really disappointing. And, you know, I point out that's the way it'll be today. Don't be shocked when there's a Judas. But what about the question, should we suspect everybody? Is that the same question as, should we be derailed if a brother, if we find out that a brother has really been bluffing the whole way through? And I don't think it is. I don't think we ought to be suspicious of everyone. What would you say about it? Do you agree with me? Why? What, what would we say that would help us to not be suspicious of everyone? I think it goes along with what we're constantly told not to judge others. Um, not to judge what they're thinking. I think we have to trust that they are being honest with us. If not, they're not being honest with us. The Lord will take care of that. That is not us. We don't have to worry about those kind of things. In that sense. You know, we shouldn't judge others' intentions. We should go with what they tell us, and 
you know, now not being fooled about it. Obviously, somebody has been has a reputation for lying, not just going with everything they say. But I don't think we should necessarily judge others' actions and words. You yeah. Stand or fall to your own master. Yeah. Something like that. There's a there's a phrase in the end of First Timothy six four. He's talking about a bunch of false teachers, really. But uh, he says he's in in four six four. He's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. We ought to have evil suspicions. Now, I want you to think about it in a different light. What about the command to love others? And that love hopes all things, believes all things, and bears all things. Do you see people differently that you really love and care about than you do your enemies? People you don't really like. You know, you see somebody you love do something questionable. How do you look at it? I knew they weren't really fair, honest. I knew this was just a front. I knew they're just scoundrels. But if it's somebody you love, well, you know, I, I feel so bad that they messed up. You know, it's a whole different feel. Think about how you treat your children. You know, when your child, you know, does something questionable, do you immediately assume the worst, or do you hope for the best? Well, if it's your child, you probably hope for the best. Now, if we're wise, I think the other side of it is, if we're wise and we love, we're not going to be just naive. You know, that could be a, that could actually hurt somebody, you know, by not helping them. So we're not going to be naive, but we aren't going to just be constitutionally suspicious if we love somebody. We're going to hope for the best. So I think we're realists. Some people are going to disappoint us. But we don't like the, that make us cynical, thinking, well, you can't trust anybody. I don't know. What do you think? So. In uh, Romans 1, 29, uh, Paul lists uh, the state of, of sinful man that had a depraved mind. They were filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Um, the King James calls that malignity. And it comes from the Greek word which means an evil disposition that tends to put the worst construction on everything. It thinks the worst about every situation. And I think that fits what we're talking about. And so there's, there's, as has already been pointed out, there's Bible teaching that says we shouldn't be that way. Amen. Yeah. It's, sometimes it's hard. You know what? You know, <laughs> the thing that's difficult is you get let down a few times. It's like you try to protect yourself. You know, I don't want to ever trust anybody again. I don't want to ever believe anybody's sincere again. Because I had confidence in somebody and they really let me down. And it's tough in those situations to love and to trust and to be close. Because our tendency is to think that there's not anybody that we really can trust. And, uh, there, you know, 
And so we have to be balanced in that. I mean, I think, you know, our main trust is in the Lord, and we're not going to let a brother who ends up being untrustworthy destroy our faith in God. But we're not going to be this kind of person that, you know, I don't ever trust anybody because, you know, I only trust in God. You know, that's not going to be right either. You know, I see people like that sometimes. They're like, you know, you can't get close to them. They won't develop a relationship with you because they never think they can trust you. Well, that's, that inhibits the family body relationship that we need in Christ. It's just hard to deal with all of that. And it's hard to get burned a couple times and not just feel overwhelmed with suspicion and whatever. I, I, I remember feeling that way in high school. And, in fact, I remember having to write a paper as a senior in, in an English class. Kind of your view on life, you know, end of the year thing. And I wrote a pretty negative paper that uh, basically said you can't trust anybody but God. And uh, my English teacher didn't really like it very well. <laughs> it was probably a little negative, but there was a lot of truth in it too. And I'd been through some situations where I'd been betrayed. And, and it, it was overwhelming. It felt overwhelming. And I felt like I could not trust anybody but God. And to be honest, that didn't make me feel good. I mean, there should have been some satisfaction in that, but I don't think there really was for me at that time. You know, I mean, isn't love risky? When you love someone, aren't you risking getting hurt? I think we are. I mean, look at what God risked. Look at what God gave up. And any time you love someone, you allow yourself to be attached to them just because of your concern for them. And there are some times they're going to chop the limb off behind you. And you're going to get hurt. It's going to, it's going to disappoint you. It's going to discourage you. It's going to be agonizing for you. I think that's part of the cost and the sacrifice we make to love others. Is that we really, you know, make ourselves vulnerable. And we risk getting hurt to care about them. That's true even if we don't have great trust in them. Just to care about them and to love them. And to feel for them. And to really care that they do well. That already is setting ourselves up for the potential of getting hurt. And I think when you love people, you get hurt over and over again. I know, you know, growing up, I really didn't care about anybody besides myself. Um, I wasn't extremely, I don't know, mean in that at all. I just didn't have feelings for anybody besides myself. I, I even tried to help some people in some way. But, but nobody really ever affected me. I never had any sense of attachment. And, you know, what I noticed is, oh, well, I didn't realize, it, you know, I mean, when you're, when you're a certain way, you don't think about being other ways. But I was always very level. Nothing ever really affected me. You know, I didn't really have strong attachment to anything. So I was never really excited. I was never really depressed. I was never really affected by much. And, you know, I consciously for a period of years, really tried to work on loving others. I tried to work on being compassionate. You know, I remember several years ago, probably, probably 30 years ago, 
going through like some lists of virtues in the Bible. And one of the lists had compassion. And I usually tried to rate, like, which of these do I do best with, which do I do the worst with, to try to help me think about what I need to work on. And I, I ran across one of those the other day. Compassion was at the bottom of the list. That was what I really struggled with the most. I saw that then. Well, you know what I started realizing several years ago? Only a few years ago now. As I started to develop more concern for others and more love and more compassion. You know, that was painful. And I started finding myself really up and down. You know, because, you know, the people I was concerned about, their ups and downs affected me. And it, it took a while to kind of dawn on me, what's going on with me? You know, I'm so much more emotional and so much less steady in how I felt than I used to be. And it dawned on me because I actually care about some people now. And uh, that is really painful. Man, it's, it's really, it is, it is hard. But it's exactly what the Lord has done for us. The Lord, how, why would the Lord who has absolutely everything allow himself to be affected by us? Allow himself to actually feel our hurt and our pain and even our sins? That's amazing. It really is. So I think he's our guide in that. And he's been hurt a bunch. Comments and thoughts. And yet he's still steady. He doesn't have yes. the, in the negative sense, the big emotional swings, at least. He grieves, and yet it doesn't change his principles and his consistent love and his reliability. And I think that's what we have to strive for. <coughs> we feel with people, and we grieve. And it affects us, and yet it doesn't sway us from our commitment to God and our determination to live for Him and do what's right. That's a bit of a challenge sometimes. But I think that's exactly where we need to be. That's a good point. I think my seeing God as, as steady makes me minimize His ability to be excited when things go well or to be discouraged and you know compassionate and affected when when I don't do well. So I, I think it's hard for my mind to comprehend how all that can, can be true. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we need to, uh, you know, just think about more of that. I, I, there's a couple passages that come to mind. Isaiah 63 uh, and verse um, 9, In all their affliction he was afflicted. That's in the whole list of things he's talking about, this relationship with God's, with his people. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah 63, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a lot of passages that say things like that, but that he was afflicted and he was grieved. And then I think about the opposite emotion. If I've understood it right, Zephaniah 3 is a really cool passage. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Can you imagine God emotionally getting excited over his people? Exalting over them with joy. Rejoicing over them with the shouts of joy. Or sometimes being so choked up with emotion that he's quiet in his love. I think, you know, both God's ability to feel the, the pain and to feel the excitement of, of how his people are doing. That is an amazing thing about God. 
But I think that is the God that's revealed to us. And if we don't see it in God, see it in Jesus. What quality do you see constantly in Jesus? Compassion. The text of the Gospels say that a number of times. Probably say that more about Jesus than any other character. Jesus felt with people. I mean, what about when Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus? Why did Jesus weep? Yes. He didn't weep because of his loss of Lazarus. He knew he was just <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> he knew he was about to see him again. He wept over their grief. Jesus reveals the character of God and the God who feels with his people. Maybe a little aside from where we're going, where we were at here. I think those are really helpful thoughts. This need. Wow. You know, the Lord just really challenges us on every level in the character and the attitude that he has. <clears throat> yes, sir. Um, I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit. Um, how do you deal with people that have this attitude that they can trust no one. What do you say? Because I've had a couple people that I really I care a lot about tell me that they don't feel like they can trust anyone, that they don't trust anyone other than themselves. What do you say, and how do you deal with in those kind of situations? Maybe some others can help with that. You know, what do you say when somebody says they just don't trust anyone? Well, I think the first thing I'd say, do they trust God? I mean, that that's the first thing to build is, no matter what you think about men, God's trustworthy. Um, and then maybe build their love and concern for others. Um, I don't know. Somebody got a good good thought about how to approach that. But you're supposed to find out why they, they don't trust. I mean... Yeah. If there's a, if there's a specific traumatic incident in their past that you know they're not going to trust six foot two dark haired men with a scar across their cheek you know because one of them being you know, that's something to kind of you can work with that <laughs> um, and kind of to figure out where that's coming from and that may help you figure out where to go with it. I kind of, my, my flippant response is, well, ask them why they trust themselves. <laughs> but, That's a good point. <laughs> have, have they ever uh, let themselves down? I mean, I wonder if even thinking about people in the Bible that were trustworthy. What about Paul? Would you have trusted him? Now, should we trust anyone in the sense that we say they never do anything wrong? No. Our trust is balanced with people. But but just to hold ourselves aloof from relationships, which that usually means, it's probably not the pattern we see in the Bible. You know, we see, you know, we see wisdom in that. Jesus didn't entrust himself to somebody. He knew what was in it. You know, there's times to be skeptical. There's other times that Jesus did rely on people and trusted them in various ways.
like these two disciples were the pastor. It could be that a person's inner circle of, of associates, friends, whatever, maybe none of them are trustworthy. <laughs> However, you have to broaden that a little bit, and, and some of their acquaintances, some of their people who they interact with, whether it be at school or whether it be in some setting, they're going to have people that are trust, have shown themselves to be trustworthy, and, and they should maybe seek them out. Chris. We, we often talk about how we all sin, and we know that with ourselves, yet we're so surprised when someone else does it, and we are really hurt, and we really go to the extreme, yet we spend all of our time trying to act like we are the way we want them to be. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, it does. A lot of sense. We're, we're constantly pretending to be perfect, and then we are upset when they're not, but we know we're not. So whatever it may be, you know, they lied to me. Oh, man, that's just terrible. I can't believe a Christian would do that when I did the same thing last week. Or they cheated me out of some money. I can't believe a Christian would do that when I did the same thing last week. So it's like almost a double standard. It might be easier to accept that if we were to accept ourselves and maybe be more honest with others about the way we are. Excellent. I agree with that. Tell you something else you might think about. We tend to project on others the way we are. Someone who doesn't trust anyone, there may be reasons because they've just been let down so much or in really ways that scarred them. But also, sometimes it's people who are untrustworthy. If I'm a fake, why wouldn't I assume everybody else is? So that might be something to consider as well. We do kind of tend to look at other people. I think, I think trustworthy people tend to be naive. You know, uh, honest people tend not to spot liars, <laughs> you know, and things like that. We, we do tend to kind of look at other people the way we are. And so somebody who's really skeptical of everybody, there may be a reason just in their being untrustworthy. That, that's at least an angle to consider. And, you know, a couple people made that comment to me, one of which I really care not really care about, I respected. And somebody I tried to help and, and been there for, I felt that I'd been there for it. And they said that, they said that. Said to me, they said, you know, I don't trust anyone but myself, and it was like kind of a slap in the face to me, but also made me realize how much they struggle with self-focus. Yeah. I mean, because I recognize what I did. I mean, he number one, it could be both. I think of those things. Number one, he's done a lot of things in his past that have been right. Uh, have scarred him. Let's put it that way. Um, and also, he's been hurt by people in the past that he has tried to help. But you know, it made me I was lost for words. Because I felt that I had tried and been there for one of those kind of those things. Right. Shut me up very quickly. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I thought about after it was, and see if this is wise or not, you know, making them care more about others than they do the way they feel. Definitely. I think love will drive us to develop closer relationships. Uh, uh, so I think, yes, that's, that's something. And... You know, putting what you said together with what Chris said. I mean, why trust in yourself? I mean, are we are we that trustworthy? I mean, you could also see if you could ask them to trust you in a small thing. I mean, something that's just a nothing I mean, to a normal person, I guess. Anyways, um, but just to show them that yeah, they can they can trust a little bit. 
but then also trust them with something and show them, I mean, kind of building that little trust thing. Okay, I'm going to trust you with my car or, or, with, or with my bicycle or, that kind of thing. And I don't know, I don't know the specifics of that, how that would work, but I mean, it would seem that I'm showing you that you are a trustworthy person, so maybe you can look on others as being trustworthy. It may be, too, that if, if you don't tell me what I want to hear, I think I can't trust you. Yes. And so it may not be that people are untrustworthy. It's just maybe that maybe in some cases people aren't telling him what he wants to hear. That makes sense his character. And thus you just classify them all as untrustworthy because they don't count out of whatever you want. That's a that can be an easy cop out to not have to listen. I mean, we and we are told that the wise man listens to counsel. So in that sense, I mean that requires some form of trust. Now, listen to counsel of wise men, not listen to counsel of fool. But you know, I mean, God intends for us to have some level of trust in relationship, and even something like that. That's a good point. Other thoughts. Getting back to Mark chapter 14. Yes, yes. That was an interesting <laughs> I think that's where we were. I don't, I don't believe I have ever uh, gone down that road when I taught Mark 14 before, but, uh, you know. What, what day was this on? Do you, this, I think that, Thursday night. Thursday? Yes. Is that the first day of Unleavened Bread? Is, what, I don't know the meaning. Well, I am in a state of... Um, flux and confusion over the uh, whole Passover question. I thought I had it figured out, and here recently I've decided <laughs> I don't. So I am not sure uh, how to look at this. I need to work on that some more. I just haven't done that after I got some monkey wrenches thrown into my simplistic explanation. <laughs> I had previously taken this as the Passover meal that's that. Uh, the Passover would have been Thursday night to Friday evening. But there really is some evidence that the Passover may have been Friday evening to Saturday evening. And this may have been a special Passover meal a day before. So even some possibility that there was more than one day, depending on what Jew you were, that you took the Passover. There is some really I, this is a tough issue. And I, I worked and worked and worked and I thought, now I finally got everything all straightened out and then, <laughs> then I've decided I don't. So I don't know. I do think it's Thursday night. But when, how we work the Passover and all this, I'm just not sure. Ethelgard Smith's uh, writing in the Daily Bible is, is really good. What does he say? Um, well, more of your the Passover occurred a day later. Yeah. Although he kind of backs it up the other way and basically said Jesus died on Thursday, not on Friday. So it's the okay. same difference, just which do you move, which direction. But and, but still, even with his explanation, there are some texts yeah. which make it seem to say that's not what is being said. However, there are other texts that seem to say very clearly he didn't eat the Passover. He was desirous of eating the Passover, but didn't. So, it's a, yeah, that's a really complicated yeah. issue. I just haven't got it sorted. But his his writing is helpful. Okay, that's, that's helpful to know. You can read some fine, convincing 
perspectives on various sides of this, and I have. And uh, when I read them, they convince me about three different ways that I end up being totally lost. So, it takes me a while to say I don't know. Um, so what they want to know, you know, is it I? Jesus tells them who it is. What does he tell them? Yes. Now, here's what I think about that. You know, that would almost seem like, well, that gives it away and now everybody knows. But I'm assuming that this is not to identify the betrayer. They were dipping in a common bowl, at least a few of them sitting near each other, and so it wasn't like that would pinpoint the one. More like it shows how enormously outrageous this act is for one to have even dipped out of the same bowl and then turn around and betray him. So I think he's just saying it's going to be one of my very close associates. Maybe it says somebody on my end of the table. I don't know. But... uh, One of the other accounts mentioned that it was Judas, though? Not by name of Judas. However, in John, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, in John 13, um, Peter said to John, tell us uh, who it is, well, Uh, of whom he is speaking. So John in 25 said, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I don't don't know what to say about that. I I don't know if that meant that John and Peter now knew it was Judas, or whether it's still ambiguous, because he might have done that with more than one person. There's a note here. At Eastern meals, it was customary for the host to offer one of the guests a morsel of bread as a gesture of special friendship. By this, Jesus was showing his love for Judas, the, the betrayer. Okay. What about in Matthew where Judas asks and Jesus says, like, Judas says, was it I? And Jesus said, you said it yourself. Yeah. In verse, in 26-25, yeah. And again, I don't know if that is a private thing where no one else heard him say that. Because the thing that, that impresses me is that nobody seems still to understand that it's Judas. Right, even in John, they don't, right. they're, they're supposing he said that for other reasons. So, I don't know how to really look at all that. But maybe that was something... He said to Judas that the others didn't hear. Good questions. Maybe the they asked him one by one. Right. Kind of indicates a more. Hey, are you talking about me? Kind of thing, as yeah. opposed to a let's go around the room and everybody says it. Right. Good questions. Other questions or comments? I think the texts we're more familiar with probably have more questions and comments about. You know, we've thought about them more. Um, in 21, you know, 
what's going to happen to Jesus is what God's already planned to happen to Jesus. But man, what a terrible thing for Judas. It had been better for him not to have been born. You know, God uses Judas' sinful act. God already planned to use that. It's part of his whole scheme. This is not going to wreck God's plans. This is going to fit in with them. But man, it's a horrible thing. Can you imagine being the one who betrayed Jesus? You know, and it reminds me a little bit of Acts 1. Just, I, I heard a sermon on this on tape years ago. So we're quite a, this is quite a sermon. I don't remember the details now, but I remember it being kind of ominous. But Acts 1.25. Um, it's talking about which of the two you've chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's an interesting way of describing that. Judas went to his own place. That's uh, probably not the place where we want to go to. He didn't tell them that it was Judas because they probably would have killed him before. He didn't, he didn't want that to happen because it's supposed to go down twice. That's a possibility. Simon seemed ready to fight. Other comments? I can't help but see in this how much Jesus cares about Judas. Almost like imploring him to, and in, in the other examples in the other gospels, how Jesus continues to implore Jesus not to do this. He knows he's going to do it. It's written. He knows he's going to, but he continually implores him. And I just can't pick that, paint the picture for us. When we are in our sin, God continually implores us to come back. And it's the love. And if anyone had been hurt by people, it was Jesus being betrayed by one of his own. Uh, and, the, and the love that Jesus shows here for Judas and for us is just amazing. Would you treat well a Judas when you knew what he'd already done and what he was about to do? Could you sit there and eat with him? Could you wash his feet? Yes! Well, you look at the account, Judas is still there. So... I just spat on his feet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's amazing. And I think you're right. I think Jesus loved Judas. What an amazing thing. Again, I like to look at Jesus in that situation and think, well, he's different. He was God, you know, he could do that. But that's that's not fair. And that's, I think it's it's leaving it out for me that's not appropriate. Well, and think about it this way. What kind of character are we supposed to be developing? We have God dwelling in us. We are supposed to become like God. It's not that, that Jesus had some special ability to do this because he was God. His being God meant this was his character. But that's what we are supposed to have is his nature. Partakers of the divine nature. So that's not an excuse for us. That's a that's a challenge for us. That is so hard to love someone, even though they've hurt you, and even though they they're going to hurt you. And there's some people that you know that 
very well could, and it's so hard to do a lesson for us. I don't know, I don't do as well with that as I should. But to see, you know, we might do it just to do it, you know, okay, I'm going to have to put up with this person. Jesus did the put up with Judas, he loved Judas, he did everything he could for Judas, and that's such a lesson for us, it's so difficult. But we who have received that kind of love, God has loved us. We've hurt him. He knows we will hurt him. And he loves us. And he feels with us. And he allows us to hurt him. He sacrificed everything for us. If he's done that for us, that ought to help us be able to do that for others. And that is a hard thing. And we struggle with forgiving and love. But man, the fact that we've received it ought to help us. You know, I've often, I read somewhere, and I've used this several times. If God treated his enemies the way we treat ours, <laughs> where would we be? You know? We're just so self-focused in that. You know, we just got to forget ourselves. You know, our whole purpose is to serve others, not to protect ourselves. Other thoughts? All right, how about 22 to 31? And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out from, for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you yourself, this very night, before a cock crows twice, shall three times deny me. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not, not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. It looks to me like Jesus is using some of the elements of this meal. He takes some bread, he takes the cup, things that they would have been using in the meal, but he gives them special significance. You know, he thanks God for the bread, He and he gives... Uh, some to each of them, and says, take it, this is my body. Which would have been an interesting thing to think about, as he's standing there, lying there, reclining there at the table. And then he does the same thing with the cup, and he tells them this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for men. So he's, he's sort of giving special significance to this bread, to this, this uh, juice. And saying, this is, this is my body, this is my blood. Not in the sense that it's somehow metaphysically transformed into his literal body and blood, but it's what it represents, what it means to them, what it means to him. And this was not going to be a one-time thing. He said, truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
And I think that the I think the point of that is that Jesus spiritually partakes of us with us when we partake of the Lord's Supper. That He drinks of it new with us. He He shares with us in this meal. It's a communion with the Lord. And so really he's starting something that he's going to be perpetuated in his kingdom by those who follow him. Comments and questions? Then they sing a hymn. And they go out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus talks to them about what would happen. He says, you'll all fall away. And he cites um, Zechariah 13 uh, to confirm that. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That's an interesting thing. How many people do you know would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm <coughs> dying here a little later t- tonight or tomorrow. And uh, after that, I want to set an appointment with you to meet you in such and such a place. (laughs) (laughs) My execution is scheduled for 12.01 Saturday, and uh, let's meet on Monday afternoon for tea. Yeah, that's right. It's just kind of like, that's interesting. (laughs) But the thing of it is, he kept the appointment. That's the amazing thing. And that's what the women will say, or the men will say at the tomb, the angels, to the, to the women uh, in uh, Mark 16, 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He's going to keep his appointment just like he said he would before he died. So that's a really uh, impressive thing to me. And then what does Peter say about this prediction of all falling away? Yes, but that's not all he said. What else did he say? The rest of them might. Yes! It almost seems like Peter wasn't too surprised at the thought of the other disciples uh, (laughs) defecting. Maybe he sort of expected it of them. You know, all of them might. I could see that, but not me. I won't. Isn't that kind of a, you know, troubling attitude? And uh, it's almost like he engages Jesus in a contest of predictive ability. You know, he says, I won't. Jesus says, I will. Peter says, I won't. You know, Uh, it's kind of funny almost. Uh, And and it's going to end up being a rooster that rebukes Peter. He would have denied him three times by the time this rooster crowed twice. Um, I mean, what, what's gotten into Peter with this? Seems very arrogant. But I don't know if that's exactly a display of... It is a little. I mean, when he says they might and I won't, it's hard to deny that. But I think there's something else to it, too. Maybe he's been with Jesus so long that when he said that, he was probably surprised that he said that about them. Maybe he hurt even a little bit. I won't do that. I don't think he, <coughs> he didn't believe Jesus was going to die. So it was easy to say, I can go with you to death because he was going to he was going to <laughs> Yeah. 
You're right about that, I think, on all counts. I mean, do you think Peter was intentionally lying here? No. I think he was fully convinced that anything could happen and he would never fall away. He'd always be with Jesus. I think he really believes that. I think he's, I think he's determined about that. I think the fact that he started trying to fight, you know, when there were, you know, overwhelmed like 12 to however many, you know, uh, was an indication that he's going to be with Jesus. He's going to defend him. He's going to take his lumps. I mean, if they kill him, they kill him. He's going to, you know, I think he fully believes that. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we can be overconfident. You know, we can feel that so strongly. And then when the crisis comes, suddenly we fall apart. Uh, you know, I mean, it's almost like overconfidence is the wrong thing to have. Um, somebody I've been working with quite a bit did something that uh, that I, I thought twice about. Um, actually, it was uh, on my way up to the, the men's study that we had a few weeks ago that somebody I've been working with quite a bit, uh, and I communicated, and, and he communicated with me and said, you know, he knew I wouldn't have cell phone, you know, texting or service or whatever, you know, for a day, a night and a day, and he said, he said, you know, don't worry about me, I'll be okay. And I thought, that's cool, and I thanked him for that. And then the whole time I was there, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, that sounded cool, but that probably wasn't the best thing to have said. That probably didn't reflect a sense of, you know, watchfulness and, and possibility of falling. And sure enough, you know, he didn't do well. Uh, and, and, and it's really ironic because, you know, later when we communicated, I said, you know, there was something you had said to me that bothered me. He said, I know what it was. Mm-hmm. He was right. And, and I think it had represented on his part overconfidence and maybe maybe a little arrogance in a way. And it let him who thinks he stands shaky unless you fall. I mean, you know, when we think, oh, it can never happen to me, no, I'm fine. You know, we're probably just not taking it seriously enough. We need to be determined not to do what's right. I mean, you know, and sometimes I think it's easy to confuse those two. I mean, our commitment is we're going to do what's right. We don't say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try if I can. No, gonna, I'm going to do this. But not with this, well, I'm going to do this, and, you know, don't, don't you worry about me. Oh, I can handle this. Well, we do that, and we're just about to fall. Well, I think that overconfidence and that arrogance can, you know, slide into pride, you know, being too proud, which is obviously simple. So, you know, so you got to watch it. you got to keep yourself humble. Amen. Don't underestimate the enemy. You do that, and you're going to get defeated. Yeah. And it doesn't look like he was... He wasn't depending on God's strength for this. Yes. It's not a matter of, you know, everybody else is going to fall, but I'm not going to because I'm going to depend on you. No, it was, you know, I can handle this. I think it's important for us to think about, yes, standing strong when trials come, 
but not saying that as much as preparing for that. And taking those things all when they come instead of just predicting that you're going to be able to stand against them. Don't stand against them before they come. Stand when they come. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, turning to the Lord for strength as they come. You know, I mean, how many times have we done something wrong because the temptation came and instead of turning to the Lord, we thought we could handle it. So what might have been a more appropriate response by Peter if he were going to say something? Good question. (laughs) Jesus says, you all will fall away. What should Peter have said? Lord, may it never be. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. What else could he say? He could have pled for strength or, you know, pray, pray, pray to the Father for me. I'm thinking of, of Simon the Sorcerer, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. along those lines of the but it was, pray for me. I guess I, I don't know that it was nothing was going to change, maybe. Maybe that's how I'm viewing it. It, it was going to happen. Jesus already said it was going to happen. It was part of the whole plan as it appears. You know, I, I suppose, you know, maybe, I guess Peter could have asked, can you change that outcome? <laughs> well, Does it have to be a, Which might, which might. I mean, you know, God sometimes has changed uh, yeah, things when a person changes, so yeah. it might not have been unreasonable. Um, you know, think about this one. You know, what about this whole idea of the next section where Jesus will tell them, in verse 38, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. And what did they keep doing? Sleeping. Why were they sleeping? Well, their flesh was weak. We know that. And they were sleeping. But I don't think they really believed Jesus' assessment of the danger. I, don't, I mean, their overconfidence led them not to see their need to be praying at that critical time. When Jesus said to watch and pray, I don't think he was so much saying that for himself, please watch and pray for my benefit, although it must have been a letdown that they didn't listen. But I think he's saying that for for their benefit, that you may not come into temptation. And, And I mean, you wonder if Jesus wasn't saying what he said because he knew they weren't going to listen to him and rely on God's strength. Not that it was inevitable were they to have done that, but Jesus realized, you guys are not going to take this seriously. How many times could we overcome a temptation if we sensed our own weakness to the point where we were constantly praying and watching? I think the truth is, most of the time we do know, but it's easier just to sleep. And sometimes it's a whole lot harder to commit the sin I want to commit if I've been watching and praying. (laughs) 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 There's that too. I can't even think also they're overconfident because of who they had been with for the past three years. 
they were with Jesus, nothing could touch them. They were, they, in their own mind, they were professional events. Well, they were the 12 that followed Jesus through everything. Surely they couldn't fall. Boy, this whole uh, night will prove that wrong, won't it? <laughs> I think almost prepare them for the next however many years of ministry that they're going to have in Jesus' service. This is a night they'll never forget. And it definitely keeps them humble. I, you know, I think of statements that I hear a lot. And, uh, you know, I hear people say, you know, I will never fall again in this or that temptation or whatever. It's like, don't say that. You know, how do you do that? You know, how do you not fall again? You don't, you're not in control at this moment of what you're going to do, you know, five years from now, five months from now, five weeks from now. How about focusing on this present day, this present hour, do what's right right now. That's the only part you control. I was going to say, I'll keep this brief, but just, I, um, the, the story I want to tell, I, I just started on, you know, church about four and a half years ago, and I've been a Christian now for three years, and, and there's something that, I was I was able to repent of a lot of things almost right away immediately, but coming up into from the world is difficult for me. And one thing I struggled with for all three years of being a Christian, I said all the time, you know, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. You know, I kept telling God I'm going to quit. And, and I finally had to learn, earlier this year, I decided to learn what exactly my problem was, like like how to, what the problem is and why I'm doing it, and, uh, and how to fix it with myself. Because um, I realized I couldn't do it, and I kept telling God I'm going to quit. Um, but it's gone to the point now, once I studied into uh, into why I was doing it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it makes sense. But um, but I had a book and I was reading about it. And, and now I've been three and a half weeks without doing it. Um, sin. And But it was like all three years of being a Christian. Um, September 4th, I was been a, three, you know, a Christian for three years now. And all that time, I tried to repent of the sin. And it just, it took three years. You know what I mean? And I kept telling God over and over again, I'm sorry. And I felt, you know, how bad I felt. And I, and I kept saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm gonna be clean. I'm gonna be clean, and just it just kept happening, no matter what. And I realized I just wasn't putting all my faith in God. And when I when I knew the temptation was coming, I would just give into it instead of praying. You know, I would I I would feel like I I knew that I needed to pray and just not do it, but I didn't. It was like I pushed God away, and I just it was like I was holding hands with Satan. You know what I mean? And I just and I just I finally grew up about it. I was like I just need to learn how to quit. You know what I mean? So. Well, any any challenge we face, any sin we confront, we confront it one day at a time, one temptation at a time. Mm -hmm. You know? And this idea of, well, I'm never going to do this again, but if you don't do it again, it'll be because one temptation at a time you vanquish it. See, I, I learned to take the day as itself. And that's what, that's what, that's what, it was killing me because I didn't understand that. I kept saying, you know, I'm going to be, you know, in the next month or whatever, I kept focusing on the future, and I realized now I've been taking a day at a time, it's been three and a half weeks now, you know, and it's just, and it's a good feeling. And the next thing I'd say is, forget it's been three and a half weeks, mm -hmm. and take it a day at a time still. Okay. Because one of our biggest problems when we try to overcome sins in our lives is when I start counting up the time, either I become overconfident, Hey, I'm cool now. I'm, I've, I've done great. And we don't feel so dependent on God and such a mm -hmm. need for prayer and so vulnerable. 
Or then, if I were ever to sin again in the same way, it's like the whole bubble's been burst. And I know, I've got a friend. It's really interesting. I think he's doing better now. But he was a guy, a good guy, really good man. But, and he would go for months and do really well in areas of the use of his time connected with purity. And then every, maybe three months, he would start on a downward cycle. He, he maybe, he maybe, he, he had problems with watching movies. He'd start watching movies and he'd just like binge and then just give himself over to sin. And it would just lead him on like a two or three day, you know, almost orgy. And I think part of his problem was when he did something that wasn't wise, it kind of broke, it shattered his record. And then with his record shattered, well then, you know, how long is it going to be before you can get it back up to three and a half weeks again, or three months again, or however long it was, it's useless, forget it. And so I think just the, the persistent thought, you know, today is my day. My goal is serve God today, please Him today, and trust Him and pray to Him today to fight the temptations I face today. That's all I really am dealing with. And no matter how many days I've done well, today's my battle. And no matter how many days I've done badly, today's my battle. I learned the third time, the more humble you are, obviously, the better. Um, I think of Mark 12, 30, and 31, um, you know, putting God first and the others and then yourself. And if you're, if you're constantly, you know, trying to please God and, other, you know, and, and helping others and things anyway, you're not focused on sin and doing things because you're just, you know, you always got your thoughts going. So. Absolutely. Well... What Jesus said in Matthew 12 is, if you cast the demon out of the guy and then the house remains unoccupied, mm-hmm. the latter state's worse than the first. We've got to fill our lives up with the Lord. The devil has less space to operate. Father God, just for today. Yes, yes. It's a really important principle. Other comments, thoughts? Good, good discussion. Or it's like if you're like a Christian for like a really long time and you're just thinking, hey, I'm a Christian, it's fine, I don't have to do anything else. And then like one day you just get really sick and everything, and then you just start praying and doing everything else just because you're sick. And when you get better, you just think, just, it's, God did it, so I have to just go back to my regular spot where it was. Yeah. It's got to be a commitment to the Lord, not just a bailout in crisis. <laughs> My former preacher said that, he said one time, on Thanksgiving ago, he, he was eating and he ate too much and he got sick and he was, you know, throwing up and he said, he was praying to God to help him, you know, he's like, I knew I would have been praying to God at that time of day if, you know, whatever. I, no, I just thought it was, that just reminded me of this. Yeah. <laughs> but that was fun. Very good. I find it interesting in 26 that all these guys were singing a hymn together. I don't know. It just seems interesting. It's not something I would just think of them doing. I think it was a part of the Passover ritual. Is that right? I think I'm right about that. There's a note here that says, this would have been a portion of Psalms 115 to 118, traditionally sung at this season. Okay. 
Oh, uh, I think he'd already left to go and uh, make arrangements with the uh, authorities, so. That would be pretty obvious then who the betrayer was. That they wasn't obvious to them because they thought Jesus just sent him out to go buy something for somebody or for supplies or whatever. They didn't really realize. Or the feast. Yes. Which, again, says... <laughs> Yeah, I think, that, I think I'm I'm leaning toward that view, even though I've been strong on the other side. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd convince myself of the other way, and now I'm thinking it's back. But I just got to mature in my thinking before I say anything. All right, well, this is uh, where we're going to stop. Uh, ready for 1432. That uh, I think our plan is to try to do that on December the 11th, uh, which will be my next time here, Lord willing. If you wouldn't mind, I'd appreciate your prayers while I'm gone to Brazil. I leave a week from Friday. and should be in Brazil coming back November the 25th. And I'll be going lots of places, teaching a lot of Bible studies, talking to a lot of people, um, and all that. So that's the plan. Thank you for your comments and your participation.